message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder if you don't have a Bible. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, listen for who was the first married couple the world ever knew. Second, listen for a story about a fire. And third, listen for how God describes his relationship with us in the Bible. Well, we're continuing in our summer series looking at the Ten Commandments as they're found in Exodus chapter 20. And as we've mentioned, the Ten Commandments are split into two large sections. The first section, which includes commands one through four, touches on how we're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the second section, which includes commands 5 through 10, touches on how we're called to love our neighbors and our friends as we love ourselves. Now, if you're new this morning, you might be wondering, why are we looking at the Ten Commandments? Why spend so much time on a portion of the Old Testament? And there are many reasons why it's important for us to consider the Ten Commandments. In fact, we've been touching on why the Ten Commandments are still relevant and useful every week over the past few months. And this morning, before we read the passage, I'd like for you to consider how the commandments reveal something of the character of the one who gives the commands. In other words, rules reveal something of the character of the rule giver. For instance, if you came to my house and you spent some time in our family, you'd learn what we value as a family by what we might call the house rules. If you spent enough time in our home, you'd begin to see what kind of things we prohibit and what kind of things we want to promote as a family through the rules that we set and through the rules that we live by. And if we took it a step further and actually wrote those rules down, it would be even easier to make inferences about our character, about our desires, about our values, about our goals. Well, it's no different with God in the Ten Commandments where he personally gives these commandments to his people. In the Ten Commandments, we get to see what kind of things God wants his people to avoid and also what kind of things he wants his people to promote in this world and in their lives. We get a clear picture into God's character as we read these commandments, seeing what he desires, what he values, how he envisions his people will accomplish the task of bringing blessing to the entire world. And today, we come to another one of God's commands. It's a command that highlights how important God finds our faithfulness towards those we make promises to. And he's specifically talking about sexual and marital faithfulness in the seventh command. Like last week, we're going to read the seventh command from Exodus chapter 20, and then we're going to read how Jesus takes this command and broadens it in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. So this is the seventh command that God gives to a group of his people at the foot of Mount Sinai a group who has recently been rescued by God from slavery, a group, you have to remember, who came from a pagan and sexually promiscuous culture, a group 
who God longs to bless and see flourish in life, this is what he says. You shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. In my preparation this past week, I came across an op-ed from the New York Times back in 2010, actually, written by a lady named Wendy Plump. And Wendy Plump is a lady who has been on both sides of marital unfaithfulness. Her first marriage ended after she couldn't live with the unbearable tension of having an affair while being married to her husband. And she recounts how her affair was full of excitement and exhilaration and passion, which she actually says isn't really anything special when it comes to an affair. We shouldn't be surprised by that. The excitement and the passion that comes along with affair is almost a given considering the nature of what's happening. But she turns and touches on the anxiety and guilt and shame that follow that initial exhilaration. And she says this, what you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret. It will be difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. When you're with your lover, you'll be working out on your alibi and feeling loathsome. And when you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you're at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in your refrigerator, your children, your dog, because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference. And it now belongs to a reality you've abandoned. You'll be pulled between two poles, one of obligation and responsibility and the other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of these two opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. She goes on to say, once the affair is out in the open, you will strive mightily to justify yourself. You will begin to many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to. But one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. You can get over this, yes, but the innocence will have gone out of your union and it will seem as if a bone has been broken and healed, but one that rain or cold weather can set to throbbing again. Well, Wendy's first marriage ended in divorce in large part because of her infidelity, but she gets married again. She gets remarried and during the course of her second marriage, her husband is unfaithful to her. And so she finds herself on the other side of the infidelity equation, which forces her to reflect in a pretty unique way. And she says, so now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse, as I once did, and what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It's a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus your fight or flight mechanism will go haywire. You will become consumed with where your spouse is at any moment, even if you see him in the pool with your children. You'll lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. You will torture yourself with details known and imagined. 
You'll fit together the mysteries of his daily patterns like a wicked puzzle. Every absence or unexplained late night, our new habit, our sudden urge to join a gym, for instance, will suddenly make horrible sense. You'll wonder why you were ever so stupid. This is how Wendy ends her reflection on the damage that adultery can bring in her article. She says this, in the end, your marriage may not need to be trashed, though mine was. The affairs metastasized in our relationship from the inside out, and by the time all was said and done, there was little left to save. I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it's a monument to success, she says. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you were 75, she goes on, which would you rather have, years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room. Whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one, and despite the sex and the excitement or the drama and the fix of everyone's empathetic attention, there is no view from this room worth having. It is hard to fully appreciate the damage that adultery can do to a relationship. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking. And one of the reasons it's so gut-wrenching and can bring such destruction is because how beautiful and life-giving marriage was originally intended to be. Like we mentioned last week, the more beautiful something is, the more collateral damage we experience when things implode or fail to work right. Marriage is meant to be a beautiful gift from God. In fact, the Bible begins and it ends with a marriage. In Genesis, in the beginning, after God creates man against the backdrop of all this created beauty, something is not right, it says. God looks at all that he has made and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So God creates a woman. He creates a wife for Adam. And once they're married, God's creation is complete. It's very good. Marriage is the capstone of God's beautiful created world. It's an institution that was given to us before the fall, before sin entered the world. Now fast forward to the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation and what do you see? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, you see a wedding feast, a marriage supper where Jesus, the groom, is united to his beautiful bride, the church, his people. And this is how John puts it in Revelation 19. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Look, the marriage relationship is portrayed as a beautiful gift, something to celebrate, to enjoy, something that brings life and encouragement. Marriage is a good gift from God. Yet on this side of the fall, on this side of heaven, since we now live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be, you know as well as I that marriage can be hard. It can bring pain and trauma into our lives. 
and the pain and disappointment it can bring, it's in direct proportion to the goodness and the joy that it was originally intended to bring to our lives, which is hard to overstate. And because marriage is so important, it shouldn't surprise us that God includes a command that touches on that relationship in his top 10. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us that God wants us to protect and to promote marriage in the life of his people. It's worthwhile asking as we begin, what is marriage? Well, marriage in the Bible, it's a covenantal relationship where a man and a woman, they leave the nurture and the care of their parents and they cleave to each other, it says. It's when a man and a woman, they leave their family of origin, they make promises to one another before their friends and family, they attach to each other or they cleave to one another. And in Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve, they left their families and became one flesh. And that's a little bit strange, that wording. I mean, two people become one flesh. So the mathematics of marriage is one plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. If I can say it this way, they were super glued together. There was no pulling them apart. They weren't two distinct people. They were one entity. And this super glue, which is signified by the vows that are taken at a wedding ceremony, it creates the space to be fully known and fully loved. If you didn't make promises to that other person, there's no way that you would let them know who you really are. But because you've made promises to one another to be there for one another, it allows that authenticity to take place. The vows where a husband and a wife commit to one another no matter what is actually the soil in which real honest relationship can grow. In short, God wants us to be faithful to our spouses. And that's really what the seventh command is all about. That's the big idea this morning. It's worded in the negative. It prohibits adultery. But the positive side of this command is an invitation to remain faithful in your marriage relationship. An invitation to experience the joy and security and growth that the marriage relationship can bring to our life. And as we consider this command more in depth this morning, I want us to take a look at how this command acts as a hammer in our lives, how it acts as a mirror in our lives, and how it points us to hope in our lives. Hammer, mirror, hope. That's where we're heading this morning. Let's first consider how the seventh commandment acts as a hammer in our lives. Well, the seventh commandment acts as a hammer in our lives in that it's meant to shatter us in some ways. It's meant to come down on the fragile sense of self-righteousness that we build on our own strength. This command is meant to relieve us of the illusion that we're good people, to disabuse us of our self-righteousness. As those who believe they're good in and of themselves, the law is actually meant to do you and me some harm. But not for harm's sake. The law is meant to harm us so that we might turn and realize our need to be healed. And no one remains intact under the hammer swing of this seventh commandment. I mean, if you thought that you were in the clear just because of your behavior based on the seventh commandment, well, then me and you, we can fast forward to Matthew chapter 5 pretty quickly where Jesus takes this command and reveals just how far it's meant to extend in our lives. Remember, we mentioned a few weeks back that the Ten Commandments, they're the floor of God's law. 
That we're not meant to go any lower than the floor that God lays out for us. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he comes and he points us to the ceiling of God's law. He shows us the full reach and application of God's law. Look, if God was only concerned with our behavior, with our actions, then many of us could probably check this command off the list, right? But God is concerned with much more than just our behavior. In fact, you could make the case that God is far more concerned with your hearts and your motivations than he is with your behaviors. And this is why Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the floor, but I'm going to give you the ceiling. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What begins with sexual relations with another person's spouse progresses to lustful looks and intentions in our hearts. I mean, Jesus takes what was an act done with our bodies and he takes it further to the quiet intentions of our hearts and the silence of our imaginations. According to Jesus, if we've looked at another person with lustful intent, we're guilty. He's showing us that the seeds of adultery, they reside in each and every person's heart this morning. We might not have taken the steps to act out those desires, but it's not for lack of sinfulness in our hearts. It was John Owen who once said, the seat of sin is in the heart. The seat of sin is in the heart. And these heart desires, they play out in lots of different ways in our specific lives. I mean, for some of us, intimacy in our marriage isn't what we would want it to be. And you look at another couple, and you see how much fun they're having, how spontaneous they seem to be, how carefree, and your mind begins to wonder, what would it be like if I could be married to her? How much fun and excitement might we be able to have together? For others, your husband, he doesn't listen to you. He doesn't give you the respect and honor you deserve. And you begin to look at another couple and consider what it'd be like to be married to the kind of husband who would listen, who would connect with you emotionally, who would treat you like you matter. I mean, we imagine intimacy with other people besides our spouse, and it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual, playing out scenarios in the quiet of our minds. And Jesus comes along and he points to those very common desires and longings that we all have and shows us that adultery starts in our hearts. We're all guilty. Some of us haven't played out every step yet, but we're guilty at the heart level of adultery. And it's worthwhile stopping to say that God does not want to squelch your fun. He doesn't want to squelch your fun. He doesn't want to stunt your pleasure with these commands. God gives these commands because he wants you to experience joy in life and true satisfaction. And it may not always feel this way, I understand. I mean, especially when the desires of our heart pull us toward illicit pleasure. When we convince ourselves that satisfaction can be found in dark places. But God wants to protect you. He created us. He knows how life works best. How we're meant to operate unto flourishing. Look, we can liken the enjoyment of sex to a fire. A fire, if you think about it, it can be either life-giving or it can be destructive. Just think about a fire in a fireplace. 
where fire is supposed to be in the proper confines, what do you get? You get warmth and beauty and a peaceful experience. But consider fire outside the proper confines and restrictions. Then fire, it can bring destruction and harm and loss, even death. And it's a helpful image to have in mind when we think about sex and intimacy. God created it to be enjoyed within certain confines, the confines of marriage, so that it might strengthen relationship, so that it might further bond and bring relational delight to a husband and a wife. But outside the proper confines of marriage, it can be very destructive and dangerous. Instead of beauty, it oftentimes brings shame and guilt. The seventh commandment, the words of Christ, they're meant to act as a hammer that shatter our self-righteousness. And that is actually a grace of God. It's his love to us to do that, to leave all of us in desperate need of his forgiveness. But God's law isn't just a hammer. It's also a chance to look into our hearts. Let's turn and consider how the seventh commandment acts as a mirror in our lives. Look, I'd imagine that most of us have a number of different mirrors all throughout our homes. They're in the bathrooms, they're in our bedrooms, they're in our living areas. We don't often leave the house without looking at a mirror because we can't really see ourselves truthfully without one, can we? We can't see what could be the most important part of ourselves, our faces, without a mirror. Mirrors are meant to expose us, to show us who we really are. They reveal what we look like. And in the same way God's commands, his law, it does this for us. It's meant to act as a mirror in our lives. A tool that's objective, that doesn't lie, that we can't bend, that gives us an honest picture of ourselves and the desires of our heart. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Even the fact that God has to include this command reveals something about our heart's natural inclination and desires. I mean, the fact that God had to establish this prohibition for his people is revealing in and of itself. We need this floor that God has established. God values marriage so much and he knows our sinful desires, they can bring destruction. So he has to include this command, thou shall not commit adultery. What should be a given is not a given. The law is meant to show us what is going on inside of our hearts. This past week, I heard someone reference a Psychology Today article where researchers surveyed a large group of people who were presently engaged in an adulterous affair or had been in the past. And at the end of their research, they took all of their data together and they synthesized this data and they came up with eight reasons for why people have affairs, eight general reasons for why people have affairs. And it was a bit surprising to find out that out of the eight responses, only two had to do with physical reasons or purposes. The majority of responses had nothing to do with physical reasons, things like attraction or pleasure. Six out of the eight reasons people gave for having an affair all had to do with emotional and relational needs. They had to do with what was happening on the inside, not what was happening in the action or the behavior itself of the affair. And isn't that revealing? I mean, it sounds like Jesus was on to something in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't it? It's as though he knows us. 
and how we're driven by our hearts and our internal needs, how we're driven by what's happening on the inside. He knows we crave things like approval and comfort and attention and care and respect. We have great needs for these kind of things. And more often than not, we don't find enough of it in our marriage relationships. We don't find enough of it from our spouse. And we convince ourselves that maybe, just maybe another person out there can meet these needs. We so often seek external pleasures to cover over the sorrow and the sadness and the emptiness that we feel inside. But all these needs we have they will never be met or fulfilled by another person. Not even if you have an amazing spouse will they fulfill all of these desires and needs. Otherwise, adultery would work, right? Otherwise, we'd find all of our needs met in a great marriage. But that doesn't happen. These needs we have for approval and comfort and care and respect, they can only ultimately be found and fulfilled in a relationship with God. In Christ, you've got full approval. In Christ, you are full, not empty. In Christ, you have God's attention. In Christ, we have sovereign care. And we're called to put sinful pleasures to death by reminding ourselves of the superior pleasure that we already have, which is Jesus himself. And practically, this means that maybe when it comes to lust and sexual sin, I want you to go with me here, we are focused on the wrong origins. Maybe we should be focused more on the root of our lust and our sexual sin. I mean, sure, we should pray for God to protect us from lust and to give us strength to withstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But maybe we should also be going deeper to the roots and praying that we would find approval in God, find satisfaction in Jesus, Experience the approval of God in fresh ways. Rest in the care and love of Christ. God wants us to use the law to get a good glimpse of ourselves for who we really are on the inside. And when we see ourselves in a mirror, when we get a good honest look at our hearts, we're called to sobriety. It shakes us into sobriety, called to take what we see seriously. And it's so serious that to God that we remain sexually pure and faithful in our lives, that when Jesus picks up on this command and takes it to the heart level, he uses hyperbole in order to make his point. Did you see it in Matthew chapter 5? He uses hyperbole to show us how serious he is. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Look, there are so many places today where we can indulge in sexual sin, so many dark places. Think of things like websites, TV, chat rooms, business trips, the gym, hookup apps, and they're all fairly anonymous. No one even has to know. And Jesus isn't calling us to self-mutilation literally in this passage, but he is calling us to take sin seriously. Gouge out and cut off the opportunity to sin, he says. And this kind of action, it assumes some level of discomfort and sacrifice, doesn't it? And if we listen, we might have to make some painful decisions in our lives. Decisions that won't be easy. And they might seem extreme. 
But in the end, they'll keep us from even more pain and destruction. So we've hopefully seen how the law of God acts as a hammer. It acts as a mirror in our lives. And as we come to understand our sin more deeply, where are we supposed to find hope? What are we supposed to do with what we see? When we come face to face with just how unfaithful we are prone to be, how do we keep from being undone by our sin? Well, the answer is that we've got to remind ourselves that though we are often unfaithful, God is always faithful to us. The seventh commandment, it reveals God's character. It reveals who he is. It shows us what he's like. And what we see from this commandment and the rest of the story that the scripture tells, to be honest, is that God is always faithful to his people. It's his character to be faithful. In fact, you might know that throughout the Bible, God's people are referred to as those who've been married to God. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And throughout the Bible, God's people are the ones who are continually running after other lovers, continually leaving the spouse who has loved them and sacrificed so much for them. The Old Testament often refers to God's people as adulterous people in the way they engage unfaithfulness towards God. And what we find over and over again is that God refuses to give up on his wayward spouse. He doesn't let us go. He keeps his covenant promises to us even at great expense to himself. Even after we've broken our covenant promises. You saw a picture of God's covenant love and faithfulness painted for us in the book of Hosea, which was read earlier this morning, where Hosea is meant to give us a picture of what God's love towards Israel looks like in pursuing an adulterous wife. And this is what it says. Uh, We see it in Hosea chapter 3. I just want to read three verses for you. The Lord said to me, which is Hosea, go and show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. Then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. Look, the love of God towards us, it's amazing. Even better than the love demonstrated by Hosea. It should be the centerpiece of our lives, the foundation upon which we build. It was the great Puritan and theologian John Owen who once said the quotes for you in the beginning of your bulletin. He said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. According to Owen, the worst thing isn't wrong knowledge, it's not gross sin. But the worst thing is not believing that God loves you. Some of us don't like that idea, I understand. But those of us who know our sin and our failure, we love that idea. It's our foundation. It's our hope. Look, if you've ever experienced infidelity in your marriage, that is one of the most tragic, life-altering things that will ever happen to you. And you might not be able to make it right with your spouse. The covenant may be so violated and broken that it's irreparable. And that can happen in our relationships with other people. But according to the scriptures, when God binds himself to you, he does it permanently. 
I mean, even though you violate and break your promises to him, he refuses to let you go. When it comes to our human relationships, we could work our entire lives and never repair what we've broken. But what does God ask you to do to repair relationship with him? Well, simply believe that he loves you. Receive that love. Lay your sin down and run to Jesus, the spouse who came to give everything so that you might have life. Our affections for our earthly spouses, they'll come and go. But God's affection for us, it's characterized by steadfast love, a never stopping, never giving up kind of love. And this love motivates Jesus, our spouse, to give it all up for us, even his own life so that he might be married to you and me. Look, if you've been the victim of unfaithfulness, if you've been the offender that has been unfaithful, and according to Jesus, we all have. Our hope is that the love of a spouse, our hope is that we have the love of a spouse that will never forsake us. And that love has the power to cleanse us of our unfaithfulness and to change us into a faithful people. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have come to rescue us, for the way that you have come to marry us and to make us your bride. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to understand your deep love towards us and to live in light of it. And that we would allow the love that you've shown us to wash over us so that we might experience forgiveness for our many failures and also experience power to live as faithful people. We pray that you would do that in the lives of your people this morning. Do that for us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.